Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is our second, second-time guest, Mike Duda. Mike is a general partner at Bullish. Bullish is a consumer-only venture capital fund and creative agency. Some of their investments include Sunday, Spark Grills, Hue, and Care Of. I mention these companies because all of the founders have been on the show, but they've also been an investor in Peloton, Harry's, and Warby Parker, among other amazing companies. If you want to learn about the founding story of how Mike founded Bullish, I highly recommend his first episode that we recorded in 2020. In this episode, we focus on his process to identifying a consumer insight, what needs to happen in order for an insight to become an investment opportunity, and his analysis on consumer behavior. I was delighted Mike was willing to come back on the show for a chat. And so without further ado, here he is. Mike, thank you so much for joining me for a second time. You're the second, second time guest that I've had on the show. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Listen, I have a consumer VC tattoo. I think the franchise you're building is awesome. And uh, look where you are now. You're over 200 episodes and doing live events. You're like a rock star, man. So uh, thank you for remembering my name and my email address. Hardly, hardly, hardly. Thanks for being here. This is, this is going to be fun. Why don't I start, since obviously you are Mr. Consumer, what's your process for identifying a nascent consumer insight that maybe could turn into a trend? One of the things we do every year, and it's from my partner Brent Vartan, one of our GPs, is we, we do this ongoing study, The Power of Why. And, and our thesis is, and our belief is, all consumers are liars. There's a great photo out there, what women say about their husbands on Facebook versus what they say in Google. And let's just say Google is like a digital truth serum, whereas like on Facebook, my husband is great, my husband's amazing. On Google, why is my husband an asshole? Is my husband this? Is it that? And it's just so interesting. And so one of the things, like just doing like survey monkey stuff is cute, but we, we do an in-depth, we have it four years running about what consumers are really doing. And it's so compelling what we've found out because what we've landed on is that we look to invest in brands that aren't just going to get the early stage adopters. We look for, for brands that have the potential to get the early stage majority. And that's at like usually rung two or rung three of stuff in, in, in many ways, like a post-series A round. And it's interesting what they look like. As much as this podcast might resonate with a lot of people in the New York and San Francisco and LA, and you, you've heard me talk about that, the real influencers, I'm not talking about social media and Instagram or TikTok, the real influencers are, they're probably 35 to 44 years young. They over-index in areas like Virginia, Arizona, and Texas. They spend more on home services and entertainment and vacations. They like enjoying about reading about new technology changing the world versus bragging about they got one of the first 100 you know, out there. They're very curious. There are certain values that they have in terms of like family and honor are big to them. And, it, and that comes from like the, the fusion of innovation and the, the different behaviors of people. But you know, it's really interesting. Of, of this stuff, we study consumer behavior and, and where our in, informedness, like if you go back to when we first started investing in the 2010 to 2014, it was the internet is hero. Cut out the middleman, internet, boom. And you have Warby Parker, you have Harry's, you had Casper on that. Now there's an era of customization. And post-pandemic, iPhones are now 14 years young. Like the consumer demands have gone up there. It's just like more and more people are less brand loyal and they're looking for new things. And you know, part of what we go into is, is we look at consumer behavior and study what people are doing year in. We have 1,600 people that 
represent America in this thing. Like it's identifying stuff so we get a good sense of what's a trend versus what's a fad. How about that for a long-winded answer? Boom. I really appreciate that, Mike. So that is also pretty interesting. I like how you said that you're really interested in terms of the what the early majority is actually doing. And also not thinking about the early majority with the New Yorks and LAs and San Francisco's and kind of the coast of the world, but you actually think about it in um in more of like the middle of the country. And so like like the Virginia and Texas being like the main two regions. And and that's what came out. That's what when we looked at who these people are, the earliest majority. It's like we didn't say let's pick Virginia or Arizona. It's like that's where they wound up being people that look like this. It surprised us versus who we're looking at. And so Texas, does that make sense? Yeah, because everyone seems to have moved to Texas, but Virginia, we didn't see that. And by the way, this target is everywhere. That this general target is everywhere. But where the over-index surprised us, and um, it's just it's a reminder. There's 338 million Americans out there, and the ones that read. TechCrunch aren't necessarily the ones that we want to get uh, first and foremost or are the key to long-term success of the businesses we invest in. When you're doing these data analytics and and, uh, and figuring out where the early majority is, I mean, like what, what kind of goes into that and figuring out why is it Texas and Virginia that you're over-indexing on you know, when it comes to the early majority or where you think that the next, where you're examining maybe uh, consumer behavior in maybe those two regions, I'm sure also other regions as well. But where does that kind of come from? It really comes from uh, my partner, Brent Credit. Again, it's like we have, a, we have a strategy team that's adjacent, works alongside the investment team at, at Bullish. And so what we do is we actually craft and customize these research initiatives, use an outside party, pay people to participate. We also like have a couple criteria. So what knocks people out, like if they're in the marketing industry, it tends to knock them out. And so we, we do things not just for like the quick answers and say, oh, look, we did this poll in two seconds. We, we actually spend a lot of time on it. And we also do it for the number of the brands that we invest in. Like we're, we're doing a substantial initiative right now for Coulter Lewis and Sunday Lawn that I can't speak to because it might be announced by the time this podcast airs and sometime in Q1, but it's like going a deep dive in terms of looking at a marketplace and look at our current consumer base and look at the target consumers and like, okay, what can we learn? What can we model and go up from? And so if we could do that on a daily basis, on a day-to-day basis as a VC fund, bring that kind of rigor is just exceptional what sets us apart. So it's it's less about the how exactly we do it, but we have people that came from the worlds of Daily Harvest or Deloitte or people that did quant and qualitative like research for for their passion before they came to Bullish. What do you focus on like the next big thing, consumer? What which you still think maybe is underappreciated or contrarian? You know, we still maintain is like as as much as we all obsess over tech and whether it's the stock market when you look at the multiples to what early stage VC you look for innovation is like we still think it's underappreciated. One, the consumer asset class, and two boring stuff. And it, and I still contend is if that we're considered a good investor, and it's because we invest in a bike, a razor, a pair of glasses, a chocolate and shampoo. And I'm talking about Peloton and Harry's and Warby Parker and Hugh Chocolate and and uh, Function of Beauty and that stuff. And so what we, we try to do is we just study the consumer categories like we always have. We see behaviors and we look for like really intriguing entrepreneurs that are looking to burn the boats and and like pursue a passion and right or wrong for consumers, but still paranoid as to like, oh, here's how we could lose her dollar if we don't keep it up. And what's interesting is that is the nature of what that entrepreneur has been looking like. When we look at the data, like go back to 10 years ago, I think the average age of our, our founders was like 26 and at like a half or like 27 years young. The first few bets out of our, our brand fund too, which is we started investing out of in 2021 is 
We had a 35-year-old mom of two that was raising capital where she's giving birth to her second child. Well, not actually giving birth, but pregnant. A couple early 51, 52-year-old guys who were leaving a big corporate environment because they thought they could do something better. And when we look at our, 10, uh, our last 10 deals, eight were done in Beaverton, Oregon, New Canaan, Connecticut, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Austin, Boulder, Minneapolis, among others. So it's just really interesting in terms of, so it's, 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 I'm getting the punchline of the joke almost. It's like less what we look for, but like really see what's happening and, and where it's happening. And whether it's because of Shark Tank or this show, which by the way, you've unlocked a lot of people not in the, in the, in the coast have been into it or want to join venture. It's just people are realizing like entrepreneurship or investing is more accessible, whether you're overlooked and overlooked is certainly the African-American population, which is just doesn't get VC funding. Women, that despite being most of the population, doesn't get VC funding. But if you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you're white male, you're overlooked. If you're not an engineer, you're overlooked. And so it's like what I think is a lot of sunlight is being shed in those areas, which is wonderful. And our job is to find them. But it's still sticking to our core. Is this, is this a great consumer disruption? Is this a need? And then finding the, the founding teams that have an unlock. But more and more, we're, we're seeing like crazier things being attacked. And, and I say crazier, not in any disparaging way, please, but it's like investing in a mattress in 2013 was crazy. Whether it's areas in digital detoxification, whether it's areas like psychedelics, which I am hugely fascinated by, especially studying what's going on in, in areas like Brazil and in, in Asia Pac. Like, there's just a lot of stuff going on right now. This is such a wonderful time. This will literally be a golden era of consumer. I maintain it's maybe it's because of freaking bat bit a snake in China. We had the pandemic, but COVID I think is going to unlock a lot of people to say like, if I'm spending my time this way, it's just not satisfying. I'm going to go start my own thing or do something else. And we've seen so many different, like between the great resignation to the Goldman Sachs analysts to like the kind of entrepreneurs going on right now. It is, uh, it's an all bets are off thing. And so, um, so when we say what we look for, it's like, in many ways, we try not have blinders on, but we try to listen and, and use our eyes to see what we're seeing out there. And it's a lot different than it was four years ago, um, which is really cool. No, that is. Do you also think that since in the pandemic, you're probably doing a lot more virtual meetings, you're meeting entrepreneurs remotely, do you think that has been also an unlock, not only on the entrepreneurial side, people maybe leaving their jobs to actually start something and really re-examining what they actually want to do, but also on the investor side as well, um, looking more at opportunities that aren't you know just on the coast? Humans hate change, but boy, can we adapt, can't we? How can we adapt? Like, oh, what was us? Well, we can't get on planes to go see this. It's like we were raising a fund during the pandemic. Not ideal, but it just like it kind of changed the playing field. Like, okay, let's do it this way. We funded businesses that when I like to see the whites of someone's eyes, I love seeing the nonverbal in person. Well, you know, Zoom's got a strong HD camera attached to it, right? But it's like we had to do that. So we figure stuff out along the ways. And, and, and that's what, as a human race, we do a pretty good job of on that side. It also unlocks new technological needs like, why do restaurants operate this way? Or is why is education this way? Or why is healthcare this way? I mean, the healthcare system, which is one of the most archaic and bureaucratic across the board, pretty much adopted telehealth pretty quick, right? It was amazing. And some things aren't going back on that side of it. Except the Aetnas and the insurance companies world want you going back because, oh, you're not doing those regular office visits and that's how we make money. So it, it's really interesting that what can shift over periods of time. And yet, e-commerce penetration, fascinating. E-commerce penetra- e-commerce is an overall part of retail is what 13% pre-pandemic and then it went up to 27% during the pandemic. The water's going back in the ocean. That's not going up to 30 or 35% like physical retail still matters. Why? We like to see, feel, touch. Also, if I just 
got to get a Q-tip, and I don't have Q-tips, I might go to my CVS on that side of it. Or maybe I'll go to GoPuff if you know they're making money and staying businesses on that side. So what's interesting from a VC perspective on the fad trend thing is 15-minute grocery became cool again. Like, and I had flashbacks to the 2020 version, and you've had a couple of people on your show that, that have been great on it. And yet, we saw some that raised over 10 million that disappeared in seven months. And so, what's going to have staying power in terms of like a true need that's also has some fiscal prudency and viability? And what's like, well, that was nice, but you know, you, you basically snorted the cocaine of capital from VCs, but it didn't work out. That's what's just so awesome right now. It's so, I think I've stolen this line. My crystal ball is permanently like, broken. We don't know, but man, things are like happening and building and succeeding and and faltering at a record pace. And I can't say, is that good or bad? It's like, uh, it's what it is. It's it's super fascinating. And you get me thinking, Mike. That's why I love this show. You get me thinking. I love this. I don't know if I have these kind of lucid thoughts when I'm just sitting around. So God, man, your, your show's even better for my psyche than I realized. Too kind, too kind. But how do you also think, when you think about and you have your whole research team, you think about some of these massive trends that you talked about. Nostalgia, detachment were two of the major ones you point out. Do you think of your yourself in terms of how you invest where you have these themes that you think are going to be huge themes coming into the next five, 10 years? And then you go out and you chase after entrepreneurs who are building in those in those themes? Or do you think a bit more like bottoms up and you have like an entrepreneur surprise you? And to let you in into maybe a secret that you might then go back and be like, okay, actually, this this could be something big. It is more of the latter. We see a lot of FOMO. Like we say, like we've identified all these trends, and based on these trends, like pillows are going to be big. We just pillows. People are going to sleep more, and they're going to demand more of their pillows made of like whatever. Then you just can't help yourself, but you want to do a pillow deal, and then you can obsess so much. We're humans. We're irrational. Then you look for reasons to do that pillow deal versus not which is that. So we try not to do that. And again, there's 240 or 250 different categories out there. What it does is help us more inform that when we see stuff, and again, it helps us be our antidote to TAM or our complement to TAM. You and I have talked before, like I just, TAM is so overrated. It's not even funny. Like CAC, as bad in many ways. But it's just like, you throw the ball to where the someone's going, not not that. You look through the windshield, not the rearview mirror, to plow ahead. And so, w- the way we use these these cultural themes and you know what we think are like trends that have some staying power for a few years, not just like what's going to be the it dress or anything. It's just like that helps us lens to see like, oh, does this will that early stage majority be like receptive to this? We'll be looking for and. Then is there a business viability towards it too? So those are like indications and evidence we can point to that when you see like a great entrepreneur, you're not just falling in love. Wow, this person, she is great. She's amazing. But also, oh, this this is business viability because of where things are going. You know, Peloton, the TAM on Peloton in that category is 2.1 billion. Peloton, while they haven't had the best past couple months, reached 40, 40 billion dollars at one point not too long ago. And it's because when they saw like less people going to church, more you know, two-thirds of American households have dual, like, two people at work. It's like spending time at home is just more of a forced nature, so how can you make it better? And they built a community off that. So, and from a tech basis, that couldn't have existed without 4G and Wi-Fi. But we didn't invest because of 4G and Wi-Fi. That was an enablement. So all those different factors kind of go in onto it. And it, and it either, I'm, I'm trying to make it sound more complicated. It is, it's not. But it's all part of just our belief. Like, you look at the demand side. You look what's going on in the world. You look at the, like, will people need this? Is this a problem that really needs to be solved? And is this something that is that has business viability, usually some strong gross margin to go from, to be profitable at some point in time? 
and you know, so that's how we look at it. But it is like a, it is like a salad bar with no bowls. Things bleed into one another. Like the croutons into the bacon bits, the carrots in the, with the cucumbers, the romaine with the arugula. It's all together. When you're talking about companies, you're maybe saying how it's easy to kind of get into the weeds and be like, okay, what's a CAC going to be? And kind of get into all these analytics when really it's it's partly about measuring the human behavior. And if people would actually obviously buy the product or really maybe create a new habit potentially um, with this product, how do you measure human behavior per se? And if a company, they pitch to you, the bullish, how do you measure to see if this is something that that could actually catch? The biggest way we do it is, you know, shortcut a little bit is like by probing and asking the entrepreneur, like, what, what are we learning? And, you know, when I go back to Birchbox, which was our first investment today, one of the, one of the things we loved about Haley and Katya is that they did a test and with like 200 people and they, they knew maybe 20 of them, so it was only 10%. And they came back with all the data and then they said, here are the four things we learned. And it's like, she doesn't like this. She liked this. She this, this, or this. And then they iterated the product and proposition around the people. That's the kind of stuff we love that kind of marries that all up. Because here's the thing, we're not smarter than the entrepreneurs we back. I mean, we brag about the ones that hit it big and we change our Twitter profiles, right? Like, look at me. But it's like our entrepreneurs do all the hard work on that side. But, and they're the ones in the, in the pilot's uh, seat captaining the, you know, the, their plane, spending more time on it. We just love that like obsessive desire to like be able, like, are we doing the right thing? Because you know, I think it was a Steve Ballmer, Microsoft quote. It's hard to change before you have to. Maybe it was Bill Gates. And sometimes when you're doing so well and you're, and you're on the cover of all these magazines and like you're like the top spot of the Consumer VC podcast, it's like, we're doing great. Don't change everything because it's working. And yet that could be the worst thing ever because there's someone ready to come up to eat your lunch and other competitors and you're not iterating enough on that. And so we rely really in, in terms of that stuff is to how does this entrepreneur before a check, like how are they looking at it and or are they worshiping what they're doing? And they gotta love what they're doing. I mean, that's yes, without a doubt. But like if you're too precious about wanting to change around it or you don't really factor in the people giving you money, that's what I love about DTC. It's a business model, sure. I mean, there's not a ton of scale DTC and we can get into that element. But DTC is a feedback mechanism so you can actually learn from the people giving you money. And then you can put stuff out there and that can help with innovation, all these things. If you use it as a dialogue, not just as a, ooh, we're saving margins so we don't have to sell at retail. It's like, that's a part of it. But it really comes down to, is, is, is simply as I said, is like how the founder and the founding team is going about making sure that they're going to like not only win over the consumer and that they can get into CAC and LTV, but how are you going to treat and how do you make sure that you're going to stay relevant to them over time, especially in an era where you have increasingly an abundance of, <laughs> it seems like, unlimited options. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really good point. When you think about if there's a company that's on trend, maybe, or, you know, it's a nascent trend that you think could be big and, and you really like the founder and you like the company, how important is it to have a competitive advantage when it comes to the actual product it, itself? It's important. It's, it's got to be important because there's got to be a hook in it for some way. This is like, how is this better for me, whatever. It just can't be too much attribute driven. Oh, look, it's cheaper. Oh, it's faster. It's like those are things that could be with the rep pace of technology like taken away. Like when Harry's launch, Harry was not a better shave than Gillette. Gillette spends gazillions of money on product innovation. It's a really great shave. It's just like it's an insane proposition that rips you off. But like Harry's is a damn good shave and it's a, it's a better value in that stuff. And then if you look at it, it's a, it's a shaving company named Harry's. How hilarious is that? It took itself a little bit less seriously. Um, like you didn't have to shave every day, right? Versus Gillette. 
Gillette, a best a man can get. Yeah. Okay. All right. Easy 1980s aggro guy. So Parma is a brand, is is gotta be the values behind it, what it stands for. Like it's not only just the younger generations now, it's just like if I love, I'll make up 3M yellow stickies. Oh my god, these are the best things. But then I find out they're burning down the Brazilian rainforest to make them. I'm probably gonna like, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And by the way, 3M, don't sue me. I, I know you don't do that. So it's like the values of brands and companies matter a lot. And it's always interesting in cancel culture, what, well, what would people say they're going to cancel versus what they do. But you have to stand for something bigger than the product itself. But the product's got to do something. Or you go all in the other way. Wrong theory. And, and I, I'm going to say this with a huge respect. Liquid death. How awesome is liquid death? Liquid death like, is just so awesome because it's all brand. They're basically like repositioning water to make it look like alcohol or tobacco or be badass. I've tasted the water. The water to me isn't as good. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's a badge. And they just raised $75 million and good to Peter Pham, which not, not everyone loves that guy, but like he stood by that brand before it was cool. And if you look at the things they do from like making a bet on the Super Bowl on the underdog to getting a voodoo person to cast a spell, like they live into it. And yet they don't go into like liquid death now with extra like H2. O2 or H3O, right? It's just, they're, they're all into that. And so it's like, God bless them. And, and it's, it's certainly done well for them. So the product has to do something in there. But also, if you know your consumer, some consumers like, you know, when you saw the explosion of Hims, I can't think Hims was better than Viagra, but it made it certainly more, like, less old and stodgy and more recreational and more on that stuff. They built a brand and a proposition around it and, and they kind of got it. And they were like, let's lead the conversation in the open versus erectile dysfunction. No one talks about it. Everyone talks about it who has it, right? It's the, the percentage of it. So it's the companies and brands have to do stuff, but we've seen like, that's a case off patent drug goes, that was all brand. And and I'm sure some great service stuff and, and Andrew just seemed just flat out crushed it and amazing. But it's like the product has to matter or if there's if everything's at parity, be more empathetic, be more but break free of category norms or bring something new to the table and keep bringing something new to the table if that's the the game you're going to play. No, totally. It makes a lot of sense in terms of you either have maybe like a uh, some type of product innovation um, on one side, or you kind of just go in on all brand like you do with Liquid Death, which I mean, I, I absolutely love their YouTube videos. And obviously, the, the brand's amazing. And I keep thinking when I drink it, it's going to be something more, but it's great. It's great. With all this being said, what do you think is still under, since obviously you came from a, a brand building background, you still build brands. What do you think from when you think about like traditional VC, what do you think is still underappreciated in venture capital when it comes to actually building a brand or, or brand building? In, in consumer. I think we as VCs have to get more comfortable that there's different ways of doing it. And I especially believe that, like, for instance, one of the things I've become to unlearn, it's like pattern matching isn't good. Pattern matching, I put in that TAM category a little bit. It's like, oh, if we invest in people that look like this, it increases our likelihood. Like if you graduate from Penn, oh, you probably have a good business. Unless Warby Parker, Harry's, care of Hugh, all Penn. But that's how you that's how, that's one of the reasons why like African-American women aren't raising capital or women aren't raising. So it's like, part of it is like, there's a lot of people, in, in, especially in consumer, regardless of what skin race you are, that like, I have an idea, I have a problem I'm going to solve. I don't know what the venture game is. I don't know, like I'm supposed to do a pretty 10-page PowerPoint deck. This is the way I'm going to go about it. I think we as VCs have to get more comfortable with it. And by the way, I'm not speaking at the VC world like, shame on you people. I'm talking to myself as well. 
And it's like, that's why I find myself, it's just like, and I've told the Peloton story, like Peloton literally did not raise capital the right way because it just, John did it. And like, guess what? Good proposition. Uh, we have others like that as well too. And it's just, we're, we're trying to get more empathetic like really understand like how is this entrepreneur going after this and and it's because like not everyone is just googles and reads the sequoia deck or like you know spends time obsessing over like time to build quotes or you know winter is coming like that's us that's we say that a lot of normal entrepreneurs don't do that and and good for them so we have to get more comfortable just around like like assessing based on like Oh, okay. I like the way you're going about it because there is not a straight line to success or even failure for that matter in building a company. You know, and for all the like uh, Sir Blankley of like Spanx and all that stuff, Phil Knight of Nike, like they took unusual routes or did things where to face stuff. And so we, we got to celebrate differences more and not just again that who is doing it, but like the way it's being done. And that's hard to do when you have to do like, Make a decision on term sheets in nine days, not 90 days, as Josh Koppelman once said was going on like a decade ago to now. So with the speed, with more entrepreneurs coming from more areas, you have co-working spaces in like Helena, Montana, not just like wherever we work is. It's like we have to adapt that not all entrepreneurs are going to follow the process and the playbook that we'd like them to. I totally agree with you about pattern matching. It's come up on this show. Some investors love to say that they've gotten better at investing because of uh, pattern matching, but at the same time, then you might only invest in people that actually look like you or maybe think like you do. And especially for building a company, there's no really straight line to success, as you say. So um, it could be very, very different. I, I wish there was a way. I wish I was smarter. Our team is so good, and I'm I'm at least loud and bombastic, I guess. But you know, with this pattern matching, if we could take like Amanda Duckworth's book on grit is just phenomenal, and it's like, how do you do pattern matching on grit? How do you see that stuff? So I, I think there's like elements and attributes and certain people, but like it's tough to kind of pattern match that way. It's like you can pattern match on data and like more census and rational stuff, but we just, as a fan of EQ beating IQ over the long term or building bigger things, like uh, that's the way we try to look at it. So I'm not, again, as anti-pattern matching. I just think it's fool's gold and it's going to just lead us to who's getting money and who's not getting money. I should think years a little bit, but... I love to know with investors that invest in CPG, which I know you're you love investing in CPG and and, and there's your brands. And as you say, even though e-commerce has gone up to I think twenty seven percent, is that right? It's not going to go up probably maybe much farther. When it comes to go into omnichannel, I've I've had kind of two different thoughts around this. I once had Ernesto Schmidt from The Craftery who thinks that brands are actually going into retail, digital brands going to retail uh, way too early. Um, Target and Walmart are being very aggressive. And brands should actually hold out and 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 kind of focus on e-commerce more. Then I had Andy Dunn on, who was obviously the one who coined uh, DMVB, and he actually thought that brands should maybe start in retail. Wanted to know as an advisor how you think about when a brand should kind of go into retail that started off digital native. Whatever business or brand you you are, it's like who's your target audience? What are you doing? Where does it make sense to be? And Digital. I agree with the first part of the craft where you said, like, there's a lot of DTC going into retail earlier. Andy brings a unique perspective because he's been on the Bonobos end and he's been on the uh, the Walmart suit end of things, too. I will say this. Retailers that used to, you know, give brands the Heisman and be backbreakers are actively recruiting young brands faster than ever. I am amazed. In fact, we just wrote our LP letter last week and it's just the amount of outreach we had from, like, big retailers with new initiative and more is incredible. And 
Well, then he paired off with DTC and dealing with iOS 14, which is beat the living dog shit out of a lot of companies. 2020 pandemic, oh my God, it's great. Facebook Insta rates go down because all the big spenders go out. This is great. 2021, iOS 14 comes out. Oh, you not only have tough year over year comps because all prices went up, but then you had iOS 14, Apple's war against Facebook. And so that, that kicked the gut of a lot of companies. And so looking at it that way, going to retail is a way of like, well, given the arbitrage going on there, if I go to retail, it's like it could be a good way of doing it. It's kind of like marketing. It's also really good when you realize no sane human being on earth spends all their time on Facebook and Google. You just don't. So if you know, the more you know who your customer is, and so if you're like, so CVS, if your target audience, and, and there's psychographics I would get into, is your target audience is like, excuse, female in her late 40s, higher household income, um, is more into health and beauty. CVS is an absolutely phenomenal place to consider because of who their set is, and they have 9,000 locations on that side of it. Walmart has gotten has done unbelievable in terms of like recruiting uh, early stage brands. And we've had a couple of ours and they're, they're about to launch an, a new initiative in, in a certain sector that is really impressive. And they're all taken from the Target playbook that almost started with the 2014 adoption of Harry's, which set the world on fire, uh, one of our companies. So it, it's hard to say an either or. I, the one thing is, is there's got to be a better fucking word than omnichannel. It's just like, there's got to be something, but I don't have it. I'm not critiquing you, but it's just like being where your customer needs you. And so like, I, I, I will go to my local CVS for stuff. I have Amazon and that stuff, but you know, other things like let's do DTC and maybe there's certain things I can't get elsewhere. But the more you know about who your consumer really is and when and why they need you and all that stuff, the more you can figure out like what a retail sh- strategy should or shouldn't be. We, we love going, like Amorpho is one of our newest brands. They're going to be announcing some stuff related to a, a certain U.S. market soon. And it's like Peloton, almost a fantastical product. Actually, if, you're, if this were live, you'd see I'm wearing it now because I had shoulder surgery and I don't, it's weird to fit into stuff. But it's almost like it's intriguing, but you need to see it and feel and touch it so it becomes more real. Peloton was the same way. That's we, we talked about this before. Like An unlock for Peloton is when they open up stores and malls that were near Tesla's. And then they did national TV advertising during football. So that could be part of the strategy, but it's like there's no one size fits all. And and again, I wish I were smart enough or lucid enough or insightful enough to say, like, here's how to do it. But offline, I mean, offline can can and should be effective a lot of lost strategies, but it doesn't have to be in that point. And nor should you like, oh, you should just start offline too. I will say this. Another element that factors in is partnerships. It's like, how do you make news and how do you do things? And there's like some like, uh, uh, you know, uh, a reach in brand. So it's just like there's borrowed equity that if I do a partnership with like you, it's like, oh, wow, Mike Duda might be decent because he hangs with Mike Gelb and Consumer VC. That's great. So it, that stuff factors in. But it's just, we look at it just doing CAC, just doing digital acquisition. Clearly, that's under the gun. The answer isn't like, well, let's just go do TV. It can be an answer. But like, if you know the, cons- the consumer decision journey, match up to what she or he needs and how they're making decisions on, on purchases, whether it's a frequent purchase or it's a considered purchase. And then go to where she needs you. And not just basically like going to 7,000 doors right away, and that's the person from, I believe, Craftery. That's where I agree with. If early stage brands go into overexpand into retail really quick, it better work because then it's hard to raise money based on potential if you're already there and you're not getting the turns that are adequate and need there. But... We can all come up with case studies as to why each strategy could work or fail accordingly. It's just the more can you make it about where the person needs you, 
your 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 consumer and what you have to offer competitive landscape that that tends to be the guide yeah, we, we we're just more open-ended on this stuff that's we're just more open-ended because the the the, the advice we would give like a Halley hair which is one of ours versus the morpho versus some of the other ones that are like Sunday lawn what they're doing now stay tuned like it, it just it it isn't a one size fits all but that's the kind of like the methodology of the rubric we use to kind of like help our um, entrepreneurs figure that out that's helpful go where your customer needs you and also I would say too that commit when if you're actually going into whichever channel you're going into, um, when I chatted with Clayton Christopher, he was talking about how one of his entrepreneurs, I think it was Target, uh, went into Target and did not commit in Target, and, and really that, that whole sales channel completely fell apart. So, so whichever one you go into, it's uh, it's big. What is one book that inspired you personally, and one book that inspired you professionally? Shoe Dog professionally, and again, it's not necessarily the most original math because Shoe Dog, and we have our interns read it. It's a great story of how one of the most epic, iconic brands have been built. But the founder went through 15 or 16 years of like hell getting financing or not getting financing. You see a real story about how he didn't necessarily treat some of his early employees that well, but they persevered because they were they they believe in the brand, the proposition. It is it is a side of of, of like empathy that um, I can't even begin to tell you is like so good, and it's why most VC books are boring. Like I, I try to read VC books, but it's like all how to and stuff like that. That was like real. Um, ben Horowitz has written a couple books too on it. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I have a book that hit it personally. Uh, maybe I'll say the Bible, My Lord Jesus Christ. I am an Irish Catholic, but no, I, I don't know if I have anything like that because I just, as someone who's EQ or again, hasn't read as many books as I should, it's just when I think of people or experiences or real life actions, those have just imprinted more of a memorable impact on, on that side of it. So no, no Mike do to book club contributions. Um, I failed you. Twice now. Twice. Well, you've joined the club. Shoe Dog is the number one book that people recommend on this show. So um, you're... I know. And I hate, I hate to be... Not contrarian. Way, not contrarian. Like, how non-contrarian <laughs> of me. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm a, I'm a sheep. I'm a freaking sheep. My final question to you, since you're a madman, what were your three favorite Super Bowl commercials? I did like what Coinbase did. I, I love the bravery of it. The, the Coinbase CEO, unfortunately, tweeted about how the Super Bowl commercial was made and was so disrespectful to the marketing industry and advertising agency. Like, Jesus. But the spot was good, and I want to say bad things as a result, but I'm not going to participate in cancel culture. Really great thing to do, but oof, that guy. Um, I actually like the Kia dog robot one. Like showing the electric cars and with the electric dog and that side of it, it was taking, it was brilliant that you're showing still what is a future for technology that people wear because of Tesla electric cars, but doing the old Super Bowl trick of like people love dogs and pets and humor and kids. Like, let's get the dog in there, right? I thought that was exceptionally well played. Those are the two that are still memorable with me now. And, and there were certainly some others. It was interesting. I did a poll on Twitter just to see. Like, because there, there are studies that show, like, the if you advertise in the Super Bowl, like, they have 20x effectiveness in so many levels. I did a poll, like, did anyone buy anything? Did you visit a website? I think I had, like, 300 responses, and, like, 2% of people, maybe it was 1%, bought something. 26% had consideration that they might consider a product based on the Super Bowl. 19% visited a site or social media, which that was probably the Coinbase one. And then the, the remainder were like, yeah, didn't do anything. And you know, it's also a reminder that a lot of people are drinking Anheuser Busch and other products during the Super Bowl too, and they're just taking it as entertainment. I think the Super Bowl is could be one of the most is one of the most effective marketing things done well. I also think the Emmys. 
people sleep on the Emmys, but uh, talk about a way of, of reaching like women who are gathering, gathering groups and talk about like the Emmys is written. But, um, you know, in a world and this we're in venture capital, right? It's like we talk about CAC and all that stuff. Mainstream brand building can work if done the right way. So that's that's why the Super Bowl can be effective. And thank you for playing into my uh, my love of brand and marketing and creativity on that side. No, hardly. Um, and I appreciate it. What I also love about, about uh, Kia was that I felt like almost every car commercial except for Toyota went advertising electric cars. And I just thought Kia did, did it the best out of, out of any of them. So I thought that was really cool. And Coinbase was awesome. It was really, really kind of interesting. And, and uh, they did it. So Mike, thanks again so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time here for a second time. I, I will do it any other time. It's uh, what you are doing for the community, what you stand for. Like Mike Gelb, like you know, this the only venture job I've ever had was starting a company that does it. Like what you're doing is just making something that seems so untainable or so far fetched or so up there, and you're humanizing. So if you ever need like a kidney, you need a spleen, you need blood donated, I'm here for you because what you do is awesome. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I highly recommend following Mike on Twitter at Mike Duda. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 